This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card this week is Ty Griffin, number 44T, second baseman, Team USA. Team USA, a very fitting card as we wrap up the Olympics this weekend. And we will get to him in just a minute, but first we have some follow-up from some previous episodes. Last week's episode, Dan Quisenberry. After that episode, we got a note from listener Tim. Tim, Ethan Horvath, card creator. He sent us a note. Tim was reading the book K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches by Tyler Kepner. There's a section about the sinker, and it talks about Dan Quisenberry and Kent Tocolvi and how Tocolvi helped Quisenberry reach his submarining potential. And Tocolvi said that he didn't do much to help Q out, but it probably helped him to see a guy who had just had success in the World Series come in and say, what you're doing is, you're doing it the right way. And so, as a thank you, in 1980, on Father's Day, Q sent Kent to Colby, a pair of plaid socks for Father's Day. <laughs> a perfect Father's Day gift. I guess you could say, David, that, that Teak was helping Quiz reach new lows in his career, in his submarining prowess. This was really the first year of Quisenberry's dominance, and right around the time when he became a dad as well. So an excellent story. So thank you, Tim, for sending that in. And there's also... A great quote that says everything that we already knew about Dan Quisenberry, that he's kind of delightfully odd and kind. And he said that he had a contract with the baseball. He would tell the ball, our deal is that I'm not going to throw you very hard as long as you promise to move around when you get near the plate because I want you back. So if you do your part, we'll get to play some more. (laughs) Which is just so kind. David, I'm gonna I'm gonna cry again. Uh, we're gonna I know Quisenberry's gonna make me cry every <laughs> single week. So th- thank you very much to listener Tim uh, for sending that in. Uh, we appreciate it. Also, last week in the Dan Quisenberry episode, we talked about other Q names in baseball history. We talked about the player in baseball history who was listed only with the single name Quinn from parts unknown. We thought that was very mysterious and really cool, actually. And there's also a character in League of Legends named Quinn. But David, a Quinn that we did not talk about, which now came up in the news, is Quinn, the soccer player for the Canadian women's national team, who just won a gold medal. Sometimes when I'm at Target, I will buy the NWSL cards that are made by Parkside. They're really lovely cards. And, you know, I've gotten a Julie Ertz and an Alex Morgan in there. But as I was flipping through this pack, I saw a card of Quinn. And it was the day after our we recorded our episode. And I was like, well, what's going on here with this single name like Cher, Quinn? And then Quinn goes and wins a gold medal. Quinn made history this week, becoming the first openly transgender athlete to medal at an Olympic Games after their team beat Sweden on penalties in the women's soccer final. Quinn's words, I think, are important to read here about 
about their experience here in this Olympics. Quinn said, I feel sad knowing that there were Olympians before me unable to live their truth because of the world. I feel optimistic for change, change in legislature, change in rules, structures, and mindsets. Mostly, I feel aware of the realities, trans girls being banned from sports, trans women facing discrimination and bias while trying to pursue their Olympic dreams. The fight isn't close to over, and I'll celebrate when we're all here. But we'll congratulate Quinn. Great job to the Canadian women's national team. This fantastic and historic victory for an openly trans athlete. Congratulations, Quinn. Yeah, it was a great final and a great statement by Quinn. So well done. One final piece of Olympic news that we do need to get to, which touches the 1988 Tops podcast, has to do with the baseball competition. And very relevant to this week's card, just today as we're recording this, the USA baseball team lost in the final and lost to Japan. Listeners probably know this, even though we haven't talked about it on the show, but the Japanese Olympic team in baseball has their own mascot, and that is Samurai Tamabe. Samurai Tamabe is a samurai who has a baseball mixed with a bear's head on top of his own head. It's a very confusing mascot. There's a lot of layers. There's a lot going on, although he has a very cool uh, pinstripe shirt. So anyway... The Japanese team, upon winning the gold medal, sent Samurai Tamabe into such a state of excitement that he collapsed and deflated himself. And it looks like he died and went to mascot heaven or something like that. We will share the link in Twitter that has the video, the live footage of this, I don't know, death of a mascot. Hopefully he is just waiting for his next transformation and his pop album to come out. <laughs> But for the time being, R.I.P. Samurai Tamabe. This Japanese baseball team beat a USA team that was largely made up of, of older, former professionals and not quite prospects. The 1988 Olympic team, however, was made up of prospects with limitless potential. As we've talked about the 84 Olympic team that had Mark McGuire, Mike Dunn, Oda B. McDowell, and other such greats, the 88 team was destined for major league greatness. And when we started talking about Topps traded cards, we got a note from former guest Twitter user at Baseball Twit, Adam Dorowski, and he tweeted that he was surprised to see that we were going to do the, the Topps traded set because this was opening up um, new opportunities. But he did say that he was super pumped for the Ty Griffin episode that I didn't think I would get. <laughs> well, well, Adam, <laughs> here is your Ty Griffin episode. You are getting it. Even more special episode, David, that we're going to have a guest come talk about this card as well. But before we do that, let's get to the front of this card of 44T. The Team USA card for Ty Griffin. This is a great looking card. Ty looks awesome here. <laughs> Giant USA with periods after each letter. Kind of strange on the shirt and in the header of the card. It's also really well lit. <laughs> he just looks good. The hat looks good. You know, the hat and jersey are a little bit generic, but Ty looks good. And I think that this has the best design of any of the cards in the 88 top set we get a lot of colors that don't really make sense on some of the cards this one it's all red white and blue and the header is 
split blue, white, red. Mm. And most of them are solid colors. This is just a great looking card. Tie looks good. Good lighting. A plus. Ty's got kind of not quite a smile, but kind of biting his lip smile. It's kind of an overbite look. Flipping to the back of 44T, Ty Griffin, second baseman, six feet tall, 180, right-handed thrower and switch hitter, born September 5th, 1967 in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, with a home in Tampa, Florida. Ty was raised in Tampa, so part of that great baseball tradition in Tampa, Florida. He was on the 1980 Belmont Heights Little League team with Gary Sheffield and Derek Bell. He was a couple years younger than Dwight Gooden and Floyd Yeomans. All those guys knew each other, and they all grew up together and probably made each other better. This 1980 Belmont Heights Little League team made it to the final of the Little League World Series against Taiwan. Ty hit a home run in that final, but his team sadly lost 4-3. to Taiwan would beat Belmont Heights again in the 1981 final, and that was one of five straight titles for that Taiwanese Little League team. Ty Griffin went to C. Leon King High School, and that school has a bit of an odd history. It was built on a cemetery. Very recently, a former county employee alerted the local government that there might be unmarked graves under this school site. And there was a largely black indigent cemetery that was a city-owned cemetery that was on this property. And in 1957, the city sold the property to a private individual. And in the deed, it was listed that there was a cemetery on the site. But that fact was forgotten. And two years later, the school district bought the land and built a school, put an agriculture program over the cemetery. So in recent years, they did ground-penetrating radar and found evidence of more than 100 graves. And this was a segregation-era pauper cemetery called Ridgewood Cemetery. It wasn't discovered until 2019, and there may be more than 250 people buried at the site. It's just shocking evidence of the kind of recency of segregation and the erasure of black history in, in the South. And recently, legislators in Florida have uh, proposed a task force to locate other unmarked black cemeteries in the state. This is not the first in the Tampa area to be found underneath something that had been built on. So a, a very a strange history of this school. Other alumni in, in the school include a Little League teammate of Ty Griffin, Derek Bell, Jim Morrison. Mm, real, wait. Not, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> the baseball guy who we're, we're going to get to someday. The late professional wrestler Mike Awesome and Tim Cruz, who has a rookie card in the 88 top set. At King High, Ty was an accomplished player. He was picked in the 12th round of the Major League Draft by the Orioles in 1985, but he didn't sign. He said he wanted a backup plan, and that backup plan was to go to Georgia Tech and play baseball. Matt, are you aware of the song Ramblin' Wreck from Georgia Tech? talked about a fight song in a while. So this song, Ramblin' Wreck from Georgia Tech, is based off of A Son of a Gambolier, which is an old-timey, like, sea shanty type of song. This was performed on the Ed Sullivan Show by the Georgia Tech 
pep club in the 1950s. Ed Sullivan made them change Helleva to Hekava. And later in that decade, when Nixon and Khrushchev met in Moscow, they sang this song together, apparently. Nixon said that he didn't know any songs in Russian. Nikita Khrushchev only knew one song in English, this song, because he saw it on Ed Sullivan. (laughs) (laughs) So... The power of American culture. (laughs) Needless to say, Nikita Khrushchev was very aware of the engineering prowess of the Georgia Technical Institute. Ty was as well. He went to Georgia Tech for industrial engineering and became one of the best players in their baseball team's history. Yeah, as a freshman hitting almost 350 steals... Second in the NCAA Division One, sophomore year even better, hitting 353, seven home runs and 39 steals, and all conference as a second baseman, and that earned him a spot on the U.S. national team in the Pan Am Games. And those games were played at Bush Stadium, not that one, <laughs> Bush Stadium in Indianapolis. And this tournament also served as Olympic qualifiers for the 1988 Olympics. So the top two teams, the teams that made it to the final game, were guaranteed a spot in the Olympics. And the two best teams in that tournament were Cuba and the United States. Cuba hadn't played in the United States since the Cuban Revolution, and there was a possibility that they would boycott the Pan Am Games. Castro was convinced to allow the team to play, but it led to demonstrations and taunts from Cuban expats who were in the stadium mocking the team, trying to pick fights with players, There were arguments, fights, Cuban players chased protesters into the stands, police had to get involved to break up altercations. So this tournament had a lot of international intrigue as well as as sporting intrigue. And Cuba also hadn't lost in the Pan Am game since 1967. They'd won 37 straight (laughs) games until Cuba played the USA in the preliminary round. In that preliminary round... Coach tells Ty Griffin, your job is to bunt, get on base and steal, given that direction by the coach. So he promptly steps to the plate as a left-hander and hits a home run in the seventh inning. (laughs) And then later on, the game is tied 4-4 in the ninth inning, two outs and a man on first, and Ty is up batting right-handed and hits a game-winning home run. He had only started switch hitting two years before, but there was hitting home runs from both sides of the plate in the same game. His quote was that it's the first time I've hit home runs from both sides of the plate and probably the last. I'm very surprised. This actually makes the fun fact on the card, David, that his ninth inning home run beat Cuba 6-4 in the 1987 Pan Am Games, crushing that Cuban streak. And the Cuban team came out and congratulated the U.S. on breaking the streak. Their left fielder, Lourdes Guerriel, said, a team has to lose and it was our time to lose. The coach of the U.S. also said, Do we get any kind of medal for this? (laughs) Oh, we got to play again? Because this was just the first round. USA goes 7-0 in the preliminary round. Cuba goes 6-1. But it just gets them into the knockout stages. In the semifinal, U.S. beats Canada 7-6. Cuba beat Puerto Rico 6-5 to set up a rematch in the final. And just making it to the final was a big deal for the team because that meant they get to play in the Olympics. But they also wanted to win the game. The USA was up 9-8 to eight in the 8th inning. Ty made an error that led to two runs, and the USA lost 13-9. to nine. So they finished second. They got a silver medal in the Pan Am Games. Ty took it personally. He said, I didn't play as well as I should have. But they did qualify for the Olympics, which was the goal all along. 
because that's 1987, Ty's got to go back to school for his junior year. And after those heroics and that power surge, Ty lit up the ACC. Georgia Tech won the ACC title. Ty kept up that power, hitting 14 home runs. And he hit 345 and had 38 steals. It's just a really fantastic season as a junior for Ty Griffin. This is the rest of the fun fact on the card, that he was a Sporting News All-American in 1988, ACC career stolen base leader, and a finalist for the Golden Spikes, which was won by Robin Ventura. He still holds that ACC career steals record. He finishes Georgia Tech career with a 332 average, 22 home runs, 131 RBIs, 127 stolen bases, 220 runs in 194 games, and was later selected to the Georgia Tech Sports Hall of Fame in 1994. And so in between the end of this season and the beginning of the Olympics, Ty gets drafted. And that's the final fun fact of this way to the clubhouse that Ty was signed as a first-round draft selection of the Cubs, June 4th, 1988, by scout Billy Champion. Billy Champion. That's a fantastic name. He was a pitcher for the Brewers and Phillies in the 1970s and a scout for the Cubs. He was later a pitching coach in a bunch of minor league systems and also a pitching coach for the Uni President Lions, former guest Andrew at Painted Cap's favorite Taiwanese baseball team. Sadly, Billy passed away in 2017 at the age of 69, but Ty was the ninth pick in that draft, got a $152,000 signing bonus. He was picked right behind Jim Abbott, and right ahead of Robin Ventura. Wow, so Robin Ventura, who ended up winning player of the year, Ty Griffin ends up getting drafted ahead of him. And the Cubs at this time, this is an odd choice. Ty Griffin's a second baseman. The Cubs have a pretty good second baseman in 1988. Yeah, and some guy named Sandberg. Yeah, it didn't really make sense. And this Cubs team was always looking for a third baseman, and they passed on Robin Ventura. This is the sliding doors episode that we could do one day, which is what if the Cubs had drafted Robin Ventura and the White Sox had drafted Ty Griffin? After getting drafted, Ty earns a spot on the 1988 Olympic team after his great play in college and on the Pan Am team. Baseball at this time was still a demonstration sport, and Cuba chose not to participate in the 1988 Olympics. They had demanded that North Korea be included as a co-host of the Olympics with South Korea, that was refused. And so that opened up another spot for a North American team. So Puerto Rico gets an automatic bid in the Olympics. And then Canada has a play-in spot and they play in. So there's three North American and, and Caribbean teams in the Olympics. And USA was in a division with South Korea, Australia, and Canada. As we'll go through later in the set, that Team USA included Jim Abbott, Ben McDonald, Robin Ventura, Andy Bennis, Tino Martinez, and other, of course, future stars <laughs> of baseball. <laughs> and Ty said that coming off the Pan Am win, they thought that this tournament was theirs to lose. The 1984 team had lost in the gold medal game, but Ty said that this team was different and, and that this team had a, a, a cockiness about them. Similar to that 1984 experience, this team went on a tour of... U.S. cities, 19 cities. They also played overseas in Italy, Japan, Korea, and they played a ton of games over a few-month period leading up to the Olympics. 
They went 47-11 and 11 on that tour. They made it to the final of the Baseball World Cup, which was held in Italy, and they lost in that final to Cuba. And in fact, six of those 11 losses were to Cuba. So there was a rivalry building, but Cuba didn't play in the Olympics, so they didn't have to face them again. So looking at the stats, he was a star on this team near the top of almost every offensive category during that tour. Hit 416, 16 home runs, and 52 RBIs in that 60-game stretch. USA Baseball's website has tons of documents. They have every box score from this 1988 team. But when you click on the 1988 team stats, it sends you to a 1998 team stats. So I was going to compare all of this. I had this statistical analysis, but unfortunately they need to get their links right. So in that Olympics, the USA wins their first game against South Korea. They lose their second against Canada in an 8-7 to upset. And then they blow out Australia 12-2 to to secure a spot in the medal round. They play Puerto Rico in the semifinal. They win 7-2 to and go on to play Japan in the final. In that final, Jim Abbott pitches a complete game. Tino Martinez hits two home runs. And also, Ty scores one of the runs. And there's a 5-3 to USA victory over Japan. Ty is a gold medalist. Fantastic. And I guess to this day, he has the picture of the gold medal on his Facebook page and a picture of the silver from the Pan American Games. And so that ends a grueling summer for Ty. The Olympics don't end until late September, and he isn't going to join the Cubs until 1989. Going into the 1989 season, Ty finally joins the Cubs going into spring training. And this is probably a good time for us to bring in our guest. And our guest is the creator of the One Million Cubs project. And welcome to the show, Bo. Thank you for having me. I, I'm I'm so honored to be talking Ty Griffin. <laughs> well, I have followed your exploits on Twitter and your quest to collect one million Cubs cards. And I thought at some point we would ask you to join. I really didn't expect that this would be the episode. But when I was searching for information about Ty Griffin, one of the top hits was an article on the One Million Cubs blog, and it was another piece added to my Ty Griffin collection. And I was like, well, he has a Ty Griffin collection. I got to at least throw it out there if you want to come out and talk about Ty Griffin. We don't, this this might be a light episode. This is, it sounds like the absolute perfect opportunity to invite Bo on this show. It sounds like they've <laughs> match made in heaven. So why do you have a Ty Griffin collection? <laughs> <laughs> well, my SEO strategy worked on, on Ty Griffin and, yes. and it finally hit. So Ty Griffin means a lot to me. Ty Griffin was basically the genesis of the 1 million Cubs project. My love for Chicago Cubs baseball cards because in 1989, Ty Griffin was one of the top prospects in baseball. He, the year prior, was the first round draft pick by the Cubs and he was a card in 89 tops, the number one draft pick subset within the 89 tops set. And I can't remember which cereal it was, but one of the cereals, probably one of the sugary ones because I was seven years old. If you sent in a certain amount of UPC codes, you would receive a 
89 tops team set of your of your choice. And my mom sent in X amount of UPC codes. And six to eight weeks later, I received my 1989 tops Chicago Cubs team set. I was so excited when we were running errands that summer morning that I remember opening that 89 tops team set in the drive through line of our local bank. And I saw the Ty Griffin and it was so foreign to me because he wasn't in a Cubs uniform. He was in his Georgia tech college uniform and I had no idea. I knew Sean Dunstan, Mark Grace, Ryan Sandberg, but who was Ty Griffin? I was seven years old. I had no idea how baseball worked, how players came up through the amateur ranks and eventually reached Wrigley field. So that's when I fell in love with minor league baseball prospects and Chicago Cubs baseball cards. I have a distinct memory of that same set because I think that was the first set that had number one draft pick cards in them. I was eight, nine years old as well. I had no concept of what that meant. And I thought that all of those guys were equal and that they were all going to be great. And as a White Sox fan, that same year, that was the Robin Ventura card. And so I see Robin Ventura. This is a guy coming off a 58-game hitting streak in college. And all of those guys were going to be great. And for the White Sox, it did turn out, you know, we had Robin Ventura. Then the next year was Frank Thomas. Pretty good track record. (laughs) The Cubs, who was the next year? Earl Cunningham, another one of my favorites. In fact, I have a game-used bat back here in the corner of (laughs) Earl Cunningham. And so you grew up in Western Illinois. Did you have a lot of opportunity to see minor league baseball? I did. So I grew up near the Quad Cities. My local team was the the Quad Cities affiliate in the Midwest League. They were the Angels growing up, the Angels affiliate, Quad City Angels. I just missed out because I was born in 82, which they were the Quad City Cubs at that point. Sean Dunstan played in the Quad Cities and they moved moved affiliates um, after the 84 season. So I was, you know, I was just too young to to have the Quad City Cubs as my local team. But I grew up watching the Quad City Angels, and then uh, the Clinton Giants were not too far north. But the Peoria Chiefs were in the other direction, and they were a Cubs affiliate, of course, for you know for a couple decades. Did you ever get to see Ty Griffin play? I never did. I never made it to a Peoria Chiefs game. Never got to see Ty Griffin play. And he was only in Peoria for a short time before he got promoted to A. So it would have been a pretty short window. But you have, along with your attempt to collect a million Cubs cards, you have a Ty Griffin collection. Do you have any favorite Ty Griffin pieces? Or are there a lot of Ty Griffin pieces of memorabilia? (laughs) There are not. In fact, I may be the only person that has an eBay saved search for Ty Griffin game used. In, In nothing in my searches has ever come up. I was able to get an Earl Cunningham game used bat, but nothing of Ty Griffin has surfaced. So it's it's basically just baseball cards and autographs. Right behind me, that, that baseball next to the, the nameplate is a Ty Griffin autographed baseball, which is one of my very first eBay purchases back in the 90s, in the late 90s. That's probably the only piece of memorabilia that has lasted, you know, 20 plus years from my early Cubs eBay purchases. But, you know, that's what Ty Griffin has meant to me that I would keep an autographed baseball through 
high school and college and, and your young adult moves through life, that autographed baseball is still with me. And and know that this is asked with love because we do a podcast about every 1988 Topps baseball card. <laughs> At what point did you decide that collecting one million Cubs cards would be a, a worthwhile endeavor? In, uh, in 2014, I started buying small collections off Craigslist and eventually I had accrued one million cards, just total cards, football, basketball, baseball, non-sports. And it came to the point where there were a lot of 1988 tops baseball cards. And, you know, not to, to diminish the 1988 tops set, it's not exactly a, a sought after set of baseball <laughs> cards. So it wasn't something that I could sell, but I thought I had done trades in the past say 100 Cubs cards for 100 Yankees cards. So I would pursue some team trades where, you know, I don't want 100 1988 tops White Sox cards, but I'll take 100 1988 tops Cubs baseball cards. And that's kind of how it grew. I'll turn these million unwanted 80s baseball cards into a million Cubs baseball cards. And it just kind of took off and expanded from there. What are you up to now? 600. I haven't counted my Sunday, the national from the National Sports Collectors Convention. I haven't counted my Sunday cards yet, but um, I, I pulled in over 5,000 on the last day of the show. So I'm probably around 665,000. I think my count going into Sunday was over 660,200. So right around 665,000. When you started in 2014, how long did you expect that this would take? Early on, I had no idea. I thought it could be a 20-year project because it started off slow. Not too many people have a 1,000 Cubs cards lying around. So a lot of the early trades were 100 cards here, 100 cards there. And it takes a lot of 100-card trades to reach 1 million. But then the more you know press this received and, and just the more that the project got out there, all of a sudden I'm meeting vendors at card shows and, you know, they have millions of cards and, and they'll pull cards. I have a, a local guy from the Chicago suburbs. He actually pays a retired lady to sort cards in teams and sells them for a penny per card. So I've bought over a hundred thousand from him. So it's kind of gone up from there. And, and now my projection is to have this 1 million goal met probably around July, August of 2023, based on just the the past couple years and in, in how the number has progressed each year. And what counts in the 1 million? That's a gray area. And that's a tough, tricky question to answer. So basically any Cubs baseball card in a Cubs uniform, it counts. It gets tricky when you have a like a Team USA card, one of my favorites, Ty Griffin Team USA from 88 Tops Traded. I do count that card, but that's kind of where it gets gray because there are other players in that Team USA set that later appeared for the Cubs. Uh, I think Scott Service is in there, Mickey Morandini. They later played. Now, I won't go out and collect 100 of Mickey Morandini's Team USA but I will count one of those. So that's kind of where it gets a little gray. So basically what I tell people if they think that's cheating, it's my project and I make the <laughs> rules. 
in this project? Do you have favorite items, favorite players that you go out to try to collect? Or are you more at this point just like just bulk? So when it comes to trading and, and acquiring, so I will pay basically a penny per card of the bulk 80s and 90s stuff that was you know overproduced. When I'm buying cards from a card show, that's when I'm looking for pre-war tobacco cards, vintage that I don't have. But I also collect, you know, I kind of player collect Javier Baez. I was heartbroken when that trade was announced, mm. as I'm sure most of Cubs fandom was. There's some pro- Brennan Davis and Cole Roederer are a couple of prospects that I collect and I try to, to find cards of. Dylan Cease, who I fell in love with when the Cubs drafted him in 2014. That was another trade that really hurt when he was traded to the South side, but I still acquire. And actually I, I collect some of his White Sox cards as well. Kind of a, a side PC. No, those don't count towards my, my 1 million, but they're part of my player collection. And, and I guess you kind of already went into this a little bit that because of the overproduction of eighties and nineties stuff, is that what you have the most of probably 88 tops? <laughs> By far, by far, 87 tops is, is a, a set that it just seems like they, they kept printing for five years. But we, we actually, uh, before we, we went on air, we were talking about the Russell brothers, Rick and Paul, and I share the same alma mater, Western Illinois University. When I was in Peoria, I was actually there broadcasting the uh, high school softball state finals. Whenever I'm out of town, I peruse Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, and somebody was selling 1,250 1978 tops Rick Russell cards. <laughs> for $10. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> so probably one of the best deals I've I've had in the in the project. <laughs> oh my lord. That's fantastic. <laughs> Why did they have so many Rick Russell cards? <laughs> So that's what would people ask me when I when I show the picture of the the stacks of a hundred Rick Russell cards, you know, flexing like somebody would flex their Vegas casino winnings. I'm flexing seventy eight tops Rick Russell. They ask why would you want that many Rick Russell cards, and well, the answer is simple. I want a million cards, so that helps. And I asked the seller, you know, why do you have twelve hundred? plus Rick Russell 78 tops cards. And his answer was basically the same as mine. Well, I just acquired them from the previous person. So at some point down the line, somebody was super collecting Rick Russell. It's probably someone in the Russell clan collecting their son's cards. So You never know. It might be Adam Dorowski. <laughs> it, might... <laughs> it probably is. Well, well, Bo, as for us as a show, we've pledged to do a show about each of the 792 cards in the main set and each of the cards in the traded set. We have a deep appreciation for people who obsess over a big number. We wish you a lot of luck in your collecting and in your quest. I'm a little jealous that you're going to finish yours before we finish ours because at one episode per week, we've got another 10 plus years to go, but we will be following you along the way and sending you cards. So... Where can our listeners go to find out more about your quest and if they want to send you cards? The easiest spot is my, my website slash blog, 1milliancubs.com. That has all of my, uh, my contact information. I also have a P.O. box set up. That's on the website as well, 1milliancubs.com. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and keep us up to date on, on your exploits and if, if we can help you out in any other way. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So thank you both for joining the show. That was fantastic to hear about the One Million Cubs project. And now back to Ty's career. He's got to be on his way to stardom. He had played and starred at every level, Little League, up to the Olympic gold. And his first stop was at Peoria, Class A ball. And he was solid. He hit 287, 10 home runs, 16 steals in 82 games. He earned a move up to double A. But also around this time, the Cubs decided that they wanted to get him to the pros as quickly as possible. And they have a long-term second baseman. Maybe they should try him out at third. Mm. And it didn't go great. (laughs) His offense was good enough to earn him a promotion to double A, but his defense was a work in progress. He had 11 errors in 34 games. And in double A, he slowed down offensively, down to hitting only 231, and still struggled with his defense. He had 12 errors at double A in 45 games. This move to third led to longer throws. And Ty said that it led to shoulder problems, bursitis, in his throwing shoulder. And that pain also made him change his swing. Mm. So all of these changes, they kind of got in his head. Now, in 1990, he was Baseball America's number 22-ranked prospect, splitting time between Charlotte and single-A Winston-Salem. But Again, this season doesn't grow great either. He spends time at third and in the outfield. But it really seems like, David, this experiment of turning a second baseman into a third baseman is doomed. He had 18 errors in 37 games. That bursitis affected his swing as well. He was only hitting 211 combined in 111 games at A and AA. He had nine home runs and nearly 100 strikeouts. And at this point, there's articles that are already talking about him slumping, fans booing him, losing patience, and he's still only a 22-year-old prospect. He admitted that it got in his head, and he was thinking about mistakes that he was making in the field, and when he was standing at the plate, he was still thinking about a bad throw or, or an error that he made in the field. And he said he was trying to smile his way through it. Everybody had advice for him, but it seemed like they were trying to make too many changes all at once. Nothing quite worked. 1991 is more of the same. He's at double A, just a terrible year, hitting 164 in 40 games. And he said even when he felt good at the plate, he was hitting the ball right at people. But then defense is another story. I'm learning two more positions this year. That makes four since joining the Cubs. I wish I could just stay in one position and perfect it. It just sounds like terrible coaching, David. I don't understand what a terrible decision this is. He ends up spending some time at second base finally in Winston-Salem and hits slightly better, 242, and led the Cubs minor league system that year with 87 runs scored. But 1992 comes around and it's just not getting any better. The team finally asked him where he wanted to play. And he said, put me at second base. I know that the way is blocked. At that point, the Cubs had re-signed Ryan Sandberg through 1996 Ty said, maybe that means the Cubs aren't in my future now, but I don't want to look at it that way. I'm playing for the Cubs now, so I'm going to go out and represent them as best I can and also try to put up some numbers for Ty Griffin. And so he's just trying to get back on track. It's no longer a question of 
will this guy try to take Ryan Sandberg's job? It's more just, will he become a legitimate player and will he ever make it to the pros? And shortly after that article came out in the Tribune, he's traded to the Reds. And he's traded for Scott Bryant. And Scott Bryant had been the Reds' first-round pick. He never made it to the big leagues for the Cubs, played for a few franchises in, in AAA. Ty is assigned to AA Chattanooga. And at this point, we're in 1992, so going into the Barcelona Olympics. And a news article came out that was a Where Are They Now of 1988 Olympians. And so they go through all of these Olympians, and this is now four years after. Half of the 88 team was already playing in the majors by 1992. Eight were in AAA. So that's 18 of the players are accounted for there. There were two other players who weren't in AAA or the major leagues. One of them was out of baseball. The other was struggling even at the lowest levels of the minors. And that was Ty. And this article says probably the biggest disappointment and maybe running out of time. And 1992 didn't change that trajectory. He hit 239, led the team in walks. But four years after being drafted in the first round, he's released by the Cincinnati Reds. In 1993, he switches to independent league ball. He's still trying. He's in Thunder Bay and then Sioux City in 1994 and had respectable stats in the Indy League, earning him a double-A contract with St. Louis in 1995. Hit 274, nine home runs, playing a decent second base, but at this point he's 27 years old. And he is released again. He played a couple more years in Grand Forks in the Prairie League before hanging up his glove. And so after nine years in baseball, he never made it higher than double A. How about in retirement? Ty went back to school. He had finished three years at Georgia Tech, so he just had a little bit left to finish up a degree. He went to the University of South Florida and got a degree in finance. He's married to Dallas Griffin, and he has two kids named Austin and Houston. (laughs) That's better than Waco and Lubbock. (laughs) This is my daughter, Brownsville. (laughs) Ty worked in senior management for Philip Morris for 12 Mm. years. And he worked as an agent for Star Trust Management. So sometimes working with young baseball players. And then in 2011, he became the head coach at Tampa Catholic. And this is one of the historically best baseball programs in Florida. And he ended up coaching there for 10 years. He also, at one point, was coaching in the U.S. Development Academy at the U14 level. And he also served as assistant dean of students at Tampa Catholic. Earlier this year, in 2021, he stepped down as coach after 10 years. The team went 119 and 107, winning two district titles in his 10 years as coach. He's also an inventor. I don't know, Matt, I have an ad here with Ty selling his Pivot Pro. And this is a tool that you strap your foot into and it keeps your back foot and leg properly aligned while you're swinging. So Ty putting that engineering background to good use and that baseball coaching background to good use. Sounds like a great idea. Matt, I I wonder if you could use Ty's Pivot Pro for your curling. Ooh, yeah. Or maybe a golf game. It it could probably work for either. Uh, Good alignment is, is important for both. Well, as we close the book on Ty Griffin, again, this feels like a what-could-have-been episode more than anything. We've talked about some prospects that didn't quite work out, but this one feels different. It just feels like 
somebody failed him. They tried to do too much. It wasn't the right situation to begin with. The Cubs liked his power and speed, and they thought, we can turn this into a third baseman, or he can be the second baseman of the future. But Ryan Sandberg wasn't that old. He was 28 at the time, and Ty's coming in, and by 1990... You have Robin Ventura starting as the third baseman on the south side, and Ty is bouncing around A and double A, trying to find his swing, trying to figure out third base. It just seemed like a huge mistake. Just why would you do this? To He was a surefire star. Why would you try to change that? Why would you draft him to begin with? I have a lot of questions, and it's it made me sad. <laughs> but Ty's not sad about it. He has no regrets about his baseball career. The Cubs should, but Ty doesn't. He was able to go back to school, do some things. He has a good message for kids that there's got to be something to fall back on if baseball doesn't work out. He still has that picture of his gold medal. He's very proud of it. I think his Twitter is Ty Griffin Gold 88 or something like that. He's very proud and rightfully so of that gold medal and, and that accomplishment. And he also uses the gold as motivation. He, he used it when Tampa Catholic was playing this crosstown rival, and the crosstown rival had Lance McCullers was their pitcher, and he went on to a professional career. Ty brings out the gold medal. He tells his team, we're all connected to this gold medal. He passes it around to the team that they should all play like they're gold medal winners. He then puts the medal back in his pocket where he has a decoy medal, and he told the team a win against your rival would mean more than this gold medal, and he chucks the medal over the fence. Yeah. The fake medal. Yes. The team's all going crazy, cheering, high-fiving. They go out. They beat Lance McCullers in their rival school. I guess you can only use that trick once. Yeah, yeah you can't do that twice. You can't do that twice. The, the next week, it's the class ring, or the next week, it's a... a, a it means ra- more than this Pan Am silver medal. <laughs> means more than this rare diamond I found, or... It means more than this Ty's Pivot Pro. <laughs> Joking aside, Ty seems to have done a lot for a lot of kids in the Tampa area, and he summed up his own baseball career nicely. He said, I had a chance to play in a Little League World Series, to be drafted twice, to be picked in the first round, go to a unique establishment like Georgia Tech, participate in the business world with a top 10 corporation, and now coach at the high school level. I've had everything and more that I could ask to get out of baseball. And Ty is an Olympic champ. And in this Olympic week, we celebrate Ty Griffin, USA gold medalist. Fantastic. Well, this is a gold medal show, David, and we've had gold medal guests in Bo and the One Million Cubs Project. Also, a shout out to at Baseball Twit for the suggestion. A shout out to all of you at home listening. You deserve your spot on the podium. If you've ever been part of a sing-along with the Russian president, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.